at that picture of the Dinty Moore back up there? I was just, after the three services, I was reading labels. Is that possible? The Dinty Moore canned beef, canned whatever it was. Notice though, it says preservative free. Does anybody think that's actually true? There's no way. There's no way. It's, okay, that was all. I just, I just thought that was lying. Okay, if you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to uh, Luke chapter 15. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, just grab the little insert out of the bulletin because the text we're going to look at is in there. We have been in a series at Hope where we're talking about uh, the parables that Jesus teach, taught, teached, taught. Um, we believe that Jesus was the smartest guy that ever lived and had great insights into life and God and truth. And those insights were often complex, and so he chose to throw alongside uh, those truths, throw them alongside of the ordinary stuff of life, like, um, like neighbors and, and uh, farming and seeds and those kinds of things. Uh, and that's what parable means, to throw alongside. This week, we're going to talk about one of the most well-known parables, one of my favorite parables, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. But it's really not just a parable about a prodigal. It's actually a parable about two sons. And both, both of the stories of each of the sons contain rich truths about God and his kingdom and his love for us and our relationship with him. And so this week we're going to focus on the youngest son in the story. Next week we're going to look at the oldest son in the story. So Luke chapter 15, what I want to do quickly is just kind of give us a cursory scan of the story so we know it and then I'm going to walk back through it. Uh, Luke 15, starting in verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The context of the story is Jesus tells this story uh, as a part of three stories in a row. One about a lost sheep and one about a lost coin and then the lost son. A shepherd loses a sheep, goes out and searches and finds it and throws a party. A woman loses a very valuable coin, searches her whole house, finds it, throws a party, and finally the lost son. And it, the, these stories are meant to reflect and show us God's heart for you and for me. Now the story of the younger son we're going to look at this week crystallizes a decision that's foundational for every human being that's ever lived. That includes you and me. And here it is, the foundational decision that faces every human being that's ever lived is this. Will I choose to live at home with my Heavenly Father, or will I choose to live in a far-off country on my own? That's the foundational decision that faces every human being that's ever walked or will walk this earth, and that includes you and I. See, when I live at home with the Father, it means I invite Him to be with me through my, through my day. I'm in constant communication with Him. When I'm at home with the Father, I tell him my thoughts and my feelings, my hurts, my hopes, my dreams, my fears. 
When I'm at home with the Father, I remember that my primary identity is that I'm His beloved Son. So not much can really threaten me. I'm at peace. My anxiety levels stay low. I feel safe because nothing can separate me from His love. I'm not easily discouraged. I recognize I have the Holy Spirit with me to help navigate the twists and turns of life. And I have the power of God at my availability to overcome obstacles in my life when needed. This is God's deepest desire for me and for you, that we would choose to live at home with Him. But there's another way to do life. There is a choice in the language of this story to live in a far-off country, to be far from the Father. When I'm in a distant country, my thoughts rarely go to God. I don't want to think about Him because it brings on feelings of guilt or shame. When I'm in a distant country, um, sins of the self like deceit or anger or gossip or jealousy or pride, are increasingly attractive to me. When I'm in a far-off country, I don't live with a sense of freedom and fullness and life and joy. I feel weighed down by the burdens of life. When I'm in a far-off country, I feel hurried or rushed or anxious, easily threatened. I search for bursts of pleasure, but I miss sustained joy. I know what it is to live this life, probably most of you do as well. And the choice is yours and mine. We can live at home with the Father every day, or we can live in a far off country, and the choice is ours. Some of you maybe have come here this morning, and there's a part of your heart, there's a part of your life that's in a far off country right now. But again, all of us choose it at times. All of us have had seasons or parts of our life that have been in a far-off country. So let's be clear. Jesus told the story for all of us about a young man who chose to leave home. The story Jesus tells contains a series of crossroads or four key stages in the younger brother's life. And I want to kind of walk through the story and consider each one of these crossroads. So again, Luke 15, starting in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And we're going to look at the younger one, the oldest one next week. And the first crossroad in the life of the younger son is the temptation stage. This stage happens actually before the story begins, but the story implies that sometime earlier the thought occurred to the younger son that living at home is a burden. He thinks to himself, I'd be happier away from this place. I'd be happier with all, with all these constraints in my life. And then we see this in our kids as they get, grow older. Sometimes it starts very young. One prominent psychologist named James Dobson recounts the story of a strong-willed two-year-old boy named Frankie he said one day Frankie's mom noticed that Frankie had pulled a dining room chair uh, over to the living room window behind the drapes. And he was standing up on the chair peering out from behind the drapes. She decided she'd sneak up behind Frankie thinking that maybe he saw a squirrel or bird or something he was observing. So she snuck up behind him only to her surprise to hear little Frankie saying to himself over and over and over in very sober terms, I gotta get out of here. I gotta get out of here. Well, that's the creed of the prodigal son or daughter i got to get out of here. Here at home, I'm under the authority of the Father. I have to work in His fields. I have to eat at His table. I don't want to be under His authority. I want to be my own authority. i got to get out of here. The thought, I'd be happier if I went my own way, is common to all of us. What we're saying is, I don't really trust that if I stay home with the Father, it will lead to the best life. And some of you maybe are having these thoughts now. 
Maybe some of you are tempted by a relationship that you know is not God's desire for you, but it seems to promise love or pleasure or companionship or fun. So you're thinking, maybe I just ought to leave home. Some of you are tired of being faithful in a ministry or in a small group or even in marriage. And you feel like, if I could just escape and run away, then I'd be happier. Some of you are tired of honoring God with your money. You see others who hoard things to themselves, who don't live generously, and they seem to have more than you, and you want to leave home financially. The prodigal son or daughter says, my life would be better if I could just get out of here. But here's what the prodigal never does. The prodigal never thinks it all the way through. See, we see the initial lure of temptation, but we don't see the consequences. And so for those of you who are kind of entertaining temptation, I ask you to think it all the way through. If you bail on a commitment or sacrifice your financial or relational integrity, do you not think that you won't get to the end of your life with regret? Some of you are contemplating choices or actions that if you go down that path, you enter that relationship, you make that financial decision, it will lead to misery. And everything in your future rests on your willingness to do the hard work and think through the consequences. And if you do, you'll be spared enormous suffering. But the prodigal son doesn't do that. He just dwells on his temptation for who knows how long. But you know, one of the things I've learned in my own life is you can't just keep pondering temptation forever, just toying with it. If you keep contemplating or imagining, if you begin to, you begin to just focus on temptation all, all day, you begin to fixate on it. You think about how good it would be. And you lose your trust that the Father really loves you and desires the best for you. And over enough time, the next step becomes irresistible. Look at verse 12. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided, he divided his property between them. The second crossroad in the younger son's life is the action stage. This is a huge step. This is where you cross the line from toying with an idea to actually carrying it out. Now let me be really clear. Step one, the temptation stage, is not wrong. It's dangerous, but it is not wrong. It's common to man, but step two moves into wrongness. There is no shame in step one. There's no shame in temptation. But the problem is our shame about our temptation because we think nobody would understand or nobody else would have these feelings or thoughts or temptations. That shame keeps those temptations inside and keeps us from acknowledging them and owning them and dealing with them. And because of that, we slip into stage two, the action stage. In the story, the younger son has convinced himself that he has a right to his father's property. This is a huge insight that Jesus is making into human nature. It's very, very important. He's, he's basically saying this. If you toy with temptation long enough, it will move to action. And that will happen the moment you have an acceptable rationalization for doing so. We will do something that violates our values as soon as we deceive ourselves into thinking it's okay. The power of rationalizing to violate things we know to be right is in all of us. We can get really good at this. From the simple, trivial things of life, like saying there's you know, no calories if I eat it off someone else's plate, to more sinister things like, oh, it doesn't matter my morality as long as I'm more than 100 miles from home. Some of you maybe have crossed the lines from temptation to action. You've crossed lines relationally or financially or deceit or anger, and you tell yourself it's not so bad. Others do worse. I deserve this. It's not my fault. The question is, will you and I, will we honestly face our actions 
and acknowledge they are not excusable mishaps. Will we stop rationalizing them and face up to what we're doing to ourselves, first of all, but also, and this is really important, to the heart of the Father? See, the context of this is the action that the Son takes to ask for his inheritance before his Father's dead, it was unheard of and deeply, deeply offensive to the Father. This is not a story about a son who wants a little bit of freedom, wants a little bit of time to kind of sow his wild oats. That's not what this story is about. By making the request he's making, he is horribly, horribly wronging the Father. Let me explain. Ken Bailey, who's a New Testament scholar who has studied Middle Eastern culture for decades, has done a tremendous amount of work on this particular parable. Here's what he says. For 15 years, I've been asking people from all walks of life in the Middle East, Morocco to India, Turkey to Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while his father is still living. I mean, it's one thing to ask, obviously, what, what will I get when you die? It's another thing to say, can I have it now? He said, the answers are always the same. Question, has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone make such a request? Impossible. If they did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? His request means he wants his father to die. See, the son comes to the father and says, I want what's coming to me when you die, and I want it now. I want to live my life as if you were dead. That's what it means to live in a far-off country. To choose to live in a far-off country is, in effect, to say to the father, I wish to live as if you're dead. And it breaks his heart. But the father does not do what all Jesus' listeners would expect him to do. He does not beat his son. He does not banish or shame him. The father takes what rightfully belongs to him, what would sustain him in his old age, and the father freely gives it to his son. So we need to hear this parable as Jesus' hearers would hear this parable. Not only does the father not have to do this, they would be thinking to themselves, no father would ever do such a thing. It would never happen. But the father allows the son to leave, and he does what no father in that culture would ever do, he loves what is beyond reasonable and rational, and he gives freedom to his children, even when that freedom costs him immense pain. So the son defies his father. Look at verse 13. Not long after that, and I think this is an interesting little phrase we can skip over, but that's the way it is with temptation. We can ponder it for a long time, but once we move into action, things go very quickly. That's because sin is always in a hurry because it knows it's based on a lie, and if we think about it too long, we won't do it. So not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. The third, page, the third stage is the pain stage. You live in a far off country long enough and you will experience pain. The younger son is alone and he's desperate with no hope. And the question is, how is he going to respond to his pain? What's he going to do when he hits bottom? You know, we don't like pain. We don't like to see it as it is, but really pain is a gift. When I was in college, my roommate, who's now a pastor in New York City, uh, he was a point guard on the basketball team and he severely tore up his knee, tore several ligaments in his knee and had to have major reconstructive surgery. And uh, I remember he was in the hospital for a few days, and then he came uh, back to our dorm room, and he had one of those big braces that covered the whole length of his leg and locked so his knee wouldn't bend at all. Some of you may have seen these. And I remember him the first few nights in the dorm, lay, waking up in the night, you know, writhing, kind of moaning in pain, and I would very gently just tell him to try to be quiet because I was sleeping. Um, 
but anyway, I, because he couldn't drive, I used to drive him to his uh, physical therapy, his uh, rehab appointments. And then when I first started taking him, I remember they would unlock the knee brace, but they would leave the brace on, and they would very gently kind of move things and push on things and, you know, test for the scar tissue and the swelling and all that stuff. But after a week or two into the process, they started getting more aggressive. And I remember the, the, the week, the day they took the brace off and they put his uh, leg in this machine and they strapped his thigh in one end and they strapped his calf in the other end and the machine would just start to bend his leg and he, he expressed feelings of pain very, uh, very clearly to the nurse. And she said, no, 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 pain, the pain is good. We're breaking the scar tissue. You need that pain. That's a good thing. That's, that's going to mean your knee will be healthy. We don't like pain. This is a major crossroads in his life. What are you going to do when you encounter pain? The younger son experiences pain and he no longer has the means to avoid facing the pain. No more money, no more parties, no more pleasure, just pain. In order to survive, he has to care for pigs. You probably understand that pigs are unclean, they're forbidden in a Jewish culture. This is a despised job. It brings shame on him. In fact, the phrase, hired himself out, is an interesting phrase. It actually means he glued himself to. He attached himself to these pigs and these Gentile farmers who raised the pigs. He was so desperate, he had to attach himself to people who did not want him. He's given the lowest job they can think of. He knows pain. How about you? Some of us have areas of pain in which God wants to do some work in us. Maybe we're in a painful season in our marriage. Maybe the pain of singleness or re-singleness and loneliness. Maybe pain with kids. Maybe economic pain. Maybe career pain. Maybe pain associated with past guilt and, and shame that we've never dealt with. Maybe pain that comes from disappointment and broken dreams. We have a choice. We can mask the pain. We can numb ourselves, whether it's in pleasure or achievement or purchasing more stuff or watching more TV or staying really, really busy. All of those are very popular in our culture. Or we can courageously face the pain in our lives and say, with the help of God, I'm going to open my heart to the Father. I'm going to deal with my pain and the sources of my pain and learn what God has for me to learn in the pain. The question for us really is, how much pain do we want to go through? Verse 17, when he came to his senses, and this is great. Last week, Phil did a great job talking about transformation. And one of the key points is acknowledging reality. He acknowledges reality. He came to the senses. And then he said, and I love this, again, just an insight, Jesus' insight into human nature that when we have a big meeting coming up, whether it's for work, whether it's proposing marriage to our spouse, whether it's, you know, a, a big speech, we rehearse it over and over, and he's rehearsing. How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. The fourth crossroad in this young man's life is the brokenness stage. He's in pain and he decides to go back. But he doesn't think it's possible to fully be at home with the father. He thinks he'll go back as a hired servant. Because as a servant, at least he's still a free man. At least he'll have his own income. Maybe he thinks to himself, I can live independently in the village and maybe after enough time, I can actually pay my dad back. I can be a valuable employee to him. But see, he would still not know the intimacy of a son with his father. The question for us is when we come to our senses, will we live as a hired servant or as a child of God? See, religion is about being a hired servant. 
Religion is about being good and going through religious ceremonies and jumping through hoops. And a lot of us approach God, God like that. Religion is, is kind of coming back to God on our agenda, on our terms. God, I know I've been a far-off country, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to keep these rules and do these things and jump these, through these religious hoops and rituals in order to please you and, and earn my way back to you. How many of us would say, honestly, I understand what it is to be a hired servant. I try to do things for God. I try to be good. I try to be involved in religious rituals, be obedient. But, but the truth is, I don't know what it is to simply live as a beloved son or daughter. I don't know God like that. If you would say that in your heart of hearts, then you need to travel with the son on the, his road back to the father. This desperate, starving boy makes the long journey back to his village, utterly crushed by his defeat. And he knows what to expect from the village and from the family. Hostility, shame, humiliation, rejection. He knows that's what he should expect, and he knows he deserves it. As he reaches the outskirts of the village, word starts to spread, because everybody in the town would know of the story. They see him. So skinny at first, they hardly recognize him. He's lost everything. You know, another point of shame in the story is land was a very significant thing in the ancient culture. Your family land was something that was part of your heritage, passed on generations after generations. And now the money from the family land, something that was a part of their family heritage, was in the hands of Gentiles because he'd lost it all in the far-off land. He's humiliated his family in every way possible. He knows what is to be expected. As soon as the son enters the village, the normal thing for him would be to be mocked, to be jeered, to be taunted, maybe even physically assaulted. The son walks through the village. The town awaits the moment that he will arrive home. The rest of verse 20. But he, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. You know, a Middle Eastern nobleman, some of you may know this, with flowing robes would never run. Children run. Women run. Desperate or needy people run, but not great men. It was a violation of dignity. In fact, Aristotle once wrote, Great men never run, great men are run too. CEOs, kings, popes are run too. They don't run. But you have to see that Jesus is trying to show us this is the heart of God. The Father's heart is so full that he forgets everything. He forgets his robes, those watching, societal convention. He sees only the starving, aching, exhausted figure of his little boy that he's given up for dead, and now he's home. And the Father takes off on a sprint toward his broken, hurting son. And what happens next is virtually scandalous. He arrives at his son, and he doesn't say a word. Rather, he throws his arms around him, the body of this boy that he held as a baby, that he fed that he read to, that he played with, that he taught to work, that he thought was lost. And he looks at the dirty, gaunt, broken face of his son. And the text says he kissed him. Actually, the verb is a verb that means repeated action. He kissed him and kissed him and kissed him. For who knows how long, there are no words, just tears and embraces and kisses. His baby boy has come home. And that's the heart of God toward you and me. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done. God does not want you to live in a far-off country, nor does he want you to live as a hired servant, trying to earn your way back through religious do's and don'ts and keeping rules and trying to be good. He wants you to live as a beloved son or daughter. And if you'll just turn to him, he'll run to you and embrace you and never let you go. That's the heart of God. Well, the son finally breaks the silence in verse 21. 
The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he doesn't finish the rest of his little speech about being a hired servant. And scholars are, are di- di- divided about why. Some think the father just interrupts him and says what he's going to say. Other scholars, and I, I like this idea, suppose that maybe the son is just so stunned by what's happening, he can't get the rest of the words out. See, I think the son has imagined coming home a thousand times. And he's imagined every possible reaction his father would have. But I think this reaction has caught him off guard. He imagined punishment or banishment, a lecture, shame, I told you so's, but I I think he didn't prepare himself for this. I don't think he ever fully understood what was in his father's heart toward the son, toward him. And I think in that moment, the son finally realizes, I can't earn my way back. I am not in control of the terms of my return. I mean, I think he thinks to himself, to think that I could fix all of this by being a hired servant, that's just ridiculous. To be invited back would just have to be a sheer gift of the Father, a gift of grace. So the son gives up his little plan to save himself as a hired servant. And he swallowed his pride and he surrenders utterly to the overwhelming love of the Father. Verse 22, the father said to his servants, let's let everybody know what's going on. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. This is what a king would wear. Bring the ring and put a ring on his finger. And this is the family ring, signifying he has the full authority of the family again. And sandals on his feet. Slaves would go barefoot, but free men had shoes. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That's the heart of God. To close this morning, I want to close with a retelling of the story by author Philip Yancey. I'm just going to share, it's just going to take a minute or two for me to read it. And then I want to give you some time to come home to the Father in whatever way you need to come home. Whatever part of your heart or your life has been in a far off country, maybe this morning you can come home. Here's what Philip Yancey writes. A young girl grows up in a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact at her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night she acts out a plan she's mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail about gangs and drugs and violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, and arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along. She decides her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. She's underage and men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now, she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear. It amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple tricks a night, but they don't pay much and all the money goes to support her habit. 
When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold, frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper's pile atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind. May in Traverse City when a million cherry blossoms bloom at once with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossoming trees and a chase of the tennis ball. Why did I leave, she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way. It'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if my parents are out of town and missed the message? Shouldn't I have waited another day so, or, or so until she could talk to them? Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between these worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her must hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're even there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect, and not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind preparing for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs of the bus terminal of Traverse City, Michigan, stand a group of 40 family members, brothers and sisters and great aunts, uncles and cousins and a grandmother and even a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing ridiculous-looking party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She looks through tears and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. And Jesus says, that's the heart of the Father for you and for me. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, it doesn't matter. No, no, no matter how bad it seems to you, if you just turn to the Father, He'll run to you and embrace you, however long you've been living in a far-off country. Maybe this morning it's time to come home. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am uh, so grateful for this parable. As one of the many prodigals sitting in this room, I know the pain and the shame of living in a far-off country. 
And I'm grateful for the insight and wisdom of Jesus and this teaching and his desperate desire for us to understand the heart of the Father. That no matter where we've been or what we've done, that we are welcome to come home at any point, at any time. There is no point to which we've gone too far, too far away in the far off country. And that we don't have to come back, as, as is our instinct, we don't have to come back as a hired servant and try to earn our way back by jumping through hoops or trying to be good and make up for all the things we've done. But we can come back as a beloved son or daughter. God, for those of us that are here, and there's a part of our heart, there's a part of our life that's right now in a far-off country. Give us the courage to come home. And God, I ask for more than anything else, that Hope Church would be a prodigal, hugging church. That in this community, we would be known as the place where no matter where you've been or what you've done, you are welcome here. And all you have to do is turn and we'll come running to you. In Jesus' name we pray.